today we are continuing a sermon series that we began last week talking about what it means to turn our attention back to our future. We have been through a season of exile in our own right. All of our global society has been faced with what it means to go away from life as we always knew it to be, and then to have the opportunity to return back to a place that is familiar, that we know like the back of our hand, but to a place that has been changed by the circumstances that we have all endured together. And so we were talking last week about what it means to build not just a building, not just a place, but what it means to build a people, to build a community that embodies the light and the hope of Christ in circumstances that are new, as well as in circumstances that remain unchanged. Today, we are continuing in, that ser- in this sermon series. So last week, we talked about the choices we have to make when the doors open and we have the opportunity to return. And today, we're talking about what it feels like to set down our bags and to do the work that is ahead of us. We are looking at the end of the second chapter of Ezra. Now, if you were in the pulpit, and you're, I'm in the pulpit, you're not here, you're in the pews. If you're in the pews and you, can, you have a Bible in front of you, like Rob does, I'd love for you to open it to Ezra 2. It's going to be, you know, somewhere in the first third of your book. And you're going to see in Ezra 2 that there is just list after list. And I could have read all of this chapter to you if you liked, if you wanted to hear about Hodaviah and all of the descendants of the gatekeepers like Shalom and Ater and Talmud and Akub and Hatia and Shobai, but I figured maybe you didn't want to hear all those names. But I don't want you to miss out on them. Because these names in Ezra 2 were written down on purpose so that we would not forget them because these were important people in the life of those who were returning from their exile to rebuild a community that they had always loved but had been neglected for many years. So keep that in front of you, give a read of it. We're only gonna read the very last few scriptures together and that starts at verse 68. As it talks about the whole assembly being together and all of the people were there, it finishes by saying, as soon as they came to the house of the Lord in Jerusalem, some of the heads of families made free will offerings for the house of God to erect it on its site. According to their resources, they gave to the building fund 61,000 derricks of gold, 5,000 minas of silver, and 100 priestly robes. The priests, the Levites, and some of the people lived in Jerusalem and its vicinity, and the singers, the gatekeepers, and the temple servants lived in their towns, and all Israel in their towns. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray and ask for God's guidance. It is our longing heart's desire, O Lord, to be people who echo your movement in this world, to align our steps with your steps, to repeat 
the joy in your voice. We pray that you will speak into each of our hearts, not a word that is fleeting, but one that is lasting. We ask that you will continue to guide us, to transform us, to empower us with courage so that we might be people who go forward following in your calling without any reservation. Speak your truth to us today and help us to be a people who live truthfully. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Nearly any contractor will tell you that it is much, much easier to build something new than it is to restore something that is old. Restoring a building often means issuing lead paint warnings or paying extra for asbestos removal. It means tenting for termites and discovering abandoned nests from any number of small critters in your attic. At least we hope that they are abandoned. It means that the closets are too small and the rooms are too boxy and that every light switch has a different mismatched cover. But if we were to tear it all down and start over again, then we can design what we have just as we like it. Not to mention that we will never encounter rust or lead or termites. We can guarantee that it will be up to code and to withstand the very next earthquake that we have and that that foundation is going to hold for as long as we are planning on living there. Our only goal in building something new is to build what we want for the moment that we want it. Whereas restoration requires much, much more from us. Restoration demands our most rapt attention so that we could be successful when improving the old without destroying it. My cousin Ron knows a lot about restoration. Ron is a professor of history at Ball State University in Indiana. He has a passion for making history come alive both for his students as well as for his state. And so it was that passion that drove him to purchase his home, which is an 1830 federal-style townhouse in Centerville, Indiana. It's the former home of James Raridan, who was an Indiana congressman who hosted Henry Clay overnight as he campaigned along the National Road in 1844. Andy and I were able to visit Ron as he was restoring his house in the early 2000s. And when Ron met us at the door, the very first thing that he told us was to watch our step and to avoid the stairs, which were looming very precariously in front of us, descending from the floor above alongside a wall that was bowing out with nothing on the other side, not even a hand railing that would spare the person from a very dramatic fall and death if they were trying to go down from it. So we watched our step, take a big stretch over a pile of lumber, 
and walked across what was once the great room of the house, our feet kicking up little puffs of dust as we went. And Ron opened the door and we walked into his sitting room and found ourselves back in 1844. Everything was perfect. The fireplace was lit and not lit, but it was there and ready to use. And it would have been lit if the air conditioning hadn't been running on what was really a humid summer day. Every door was refurbished with newly stained planks of wood and fitted with the same thin iron latch that Henry Clay would have used to let himself into the room. The furnishings and the tapestries were coordinated with what would have been available in that mid-19th century, including the unique tiles that were throughout the kitchen surrounding that new electric stove and oven. As we sat in that reading room that once hosted Henry Clay, we felt as though we were sitting back in time. And none of us were in a rush to leave that room, in part because at the time it was the only room that had air conditioning. Ron had restored this house, brought it back to its former glory. But he had done more than that. He had returned it to what it was intended to be, and he also had made it better for what it needed to be today. In 2011, once his home was completely refurbished, he then purchased the 1848 Centerville home of Indiana Governor Oliver Morton, and he went right back to work. Ron removed all of the intrusive interior additions. He's the expert at reading ghost marks on the floors and the walls to discern the original layout of the place, looking for evidence of bricked over windows or doors or identifying slight changes in the floor stain where a wall might have stood. In tearing down a wall that was added in the 1920s, he discovered a scrap of historic wallpaper which he then replicated and applied back in its original location in the hallway. Ron incorporated modern heating and cooling and lighting in a way that minimized their intrusion. But his one goal was to return the home into its earliest appearance. When he was interviewed by Indiana Preservation Magazine two years ago, just as he had finished the restoration of the governor's home, he said this to them. He said, he values historic places as physical manifestations of our forebearers' dreams, values, and stories. Ron went on to say that his goal is to try and create communities that are stellar, visually, aesthetically, and historically. None of which he would have been able to achieve in the same way if he had torn it all down and built new construction. You know, I believe that the Israelites would have had a thing or two in common with my cousin. They returned to Jerusalem because that city and that temple at the heart of the city were physical manifestations of their forebearers' dreams and values and stories. 
They too wanted to create a community that was visually and aesthetically and historically stellar, not just for their own well-being, but also as a way of honoring the God who had led them out of slavery and into that land with the charge and the promise that they will multiply and become fruitful, that they will live life and life to the full. Our scripture passage for today is only the last few verses of a very long chapter of lists. Lists of the names of the people who had arrived at the rehabilitation site, lists of the resources that they had in their possession, lists of the animals that they had brought along with them. This chapter is full of the lists of people who would rebuild the temple and everything that they brought to rebuild it. But even more than that, they are lists of the people who were rebuilding the story of the community. After all, this return from exile was not just about restoring a building. It was about restoring a people. And these lists are the names of the people of restoration, the ones who volunteered to live in the dust and to step over piles of lumber on their way to the kitchen, the ones who shored up the staircases and made them safe, and the ones who, alongside it all, would create a space where others could live safely and fully, still fulfilling the promise that was given to them by God to live that life to the very fullest extent. It really was going to be a whole bunch of work. Maybe it would have been easier for them to just tear everything down and start from scratch. But perhaps this commitment that they had to restoration shouldn't be a surprise to any of us. Because the Israelites are God's people. And as our friend Tom Toole is inclined to say, our God is in the business of restoration and rehabilitation. New creation has its place, that is absolutely for sure. But as we see in our scripture passage for today, as well as other places in the Bible, we see that our God is the one that commands kings to take cities of rubble and make them new. That our God is the one who takes divided communities and makes them whole. And that our God is the one who took the body of Jesus Christ once limp with death and restored it back to life. Not just to return it to the life that it had before, the circumstances it had before, but returning it into a better place returning it into an eternal existence that would never again be taken away. Our God is in the business of restoration and rehabilitation, which means that we too need to be in the business of restoration and rehabilitation. But I know, San Marino Community Church, that that's not necessarily new work for us, is it? When I was called here in 2018, this congregation had recently rehabilitated 
this facility. You replaced the roof. You reconfigured the offices. You crafted a beautiful courtyard out there. You finished the original plans for this sanctuary by building that portico right outside those doors. You had such a successful capital campaign in restoring and rehabilitating this facility that you then created a human campaign calling pastors and staff to invest in building the people. And it was successful, my friends. In 2015, SMCC experienced a height in membership and engagement that it hadn't seen in decades. We're no strangers to the work of restoration and rehabilitation. But even then, you all knew that there was more that needed to be done. Because when I was called here, I was asked not only to be preaching at the contemporary service, reaching out to the larger community, but I was also called to work on redeveloping our people while SMCC was still healthy and viable so that this church would never experience a decline, so that we might further develop a culture that is consistent with that spirit in which this church was formed. A church reformed, ever reforming, a congregation of people who would continue to serve vibrantly in this community for another 80 years, just as we have done for the previous 80 years. I was called here to preserve the dreams and the values and the stories of our forebears and to work alongside you in translating those dreams and values and stories for future generations. My title might have changed along the way, but my calling here has not changed a minute. I came here to be one of the restoration people to add my name to the same list that holds many of your names too, to hang on to what is best about this community, not with the goal of returning it to what it was exactly before, but to work together in making it better. So I'm going to ask you, my friends, how is God calling you to be a restoration person in this season? How do you want your name to be remembered when it is read on that list of those people who returned from our pandemic exile? Maybe you're called to retrofit our community with the electricity that we need to power the lights in the stove. Or maybe you are the person who's called to find a way to get the air conditioning and the heating going so that all of our guests are comfortable when they join us in this place. Maybe you're called to secure those stairs so that no one is going to get hurt just for showing up and participating as we would expect them to participate. Friends, where is God calling you to join in the act of being in the rehabilitation and restoration business? And where do you see SMCC continuing on in the next 80 years as it has the last? Amen.